after being shamed, after being falsely accused, after being declared innocent three times and yet still being called for to be crucified, after plucking the beard from his face, after spitting in his face, after mocking him with the robe, after the scourging that nearly beat him to death, after they crucified him with the cross, and then he says, Father, forgive them. There has never been one like Jesus. There has never been one like him. And you have never been loved by anybody like Jesus loves you. The scriptures record for us seven things that Jesus said when he was nailed to the cross. In this sermon series, The Dying Words of Jesus, Pastor Joplin Emerson examines all seven sayings. Listen in and hear the heart of Christ as we study these life-giving statements that Jesus spoke from the cross. Here is part one, Father forgive them. The death of Jesus Christ is what our entire faith rests upon, His death and His resurrection. It was the death that paid the cost, that secured the payment of our debt of sin. Without the death, without the blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. It was the resurrection of Jesus that demonstrated that once and for all, He was exactly who He said He was, the Son of God. His death, was a natural death in that physically his heart quit beating. He died just like all other men die. Suffered on the cross, bleeding to death, more than likely died from suffocation. Just by the way that he was crucified, the inability to breathe on the cross, it was a torturous situation. The Bible tells us that he was beaten so badly and so severely that he was nearly dead before they crucified him to the cross. It was a natural death in that he died the same way all of us die, where the heart quit beating, the blood quit moving, and he died. It was also a predetermined death. In fact, the Bible says that he was the lamb slain before the foundations of the world. Jesus was aware that this was the reason that He came to the earth. There were a lot of times in His ministry that He spoke about His hour. He would make a statement like, My hour has not yet come. And then when the hour was upon Him, He would say, The hour is now here. He understood that His death was a predetermined death. Jesus came to do a lot of things. To heal the sick to demonstrate the love of God, to accurately teach the Scriptures, to show where the traditions of man had failed. Jesus came to do a lot of things, but none of those things were part of His hour. There was a greater and more significant cause. There was a reason. There was a moment. There was an hour for which He came, and that was to die. It was a predetermined death. His death was also a supernatural death in that it accomplished the supernatural. It secured the sin payment for all of mankind that would turn to Christ in faith. There has never been a death like His. There has never been a life like His. His death was a voluntary death. It had to be voluntary. 
Look what he said in John chapter 10, verses 17 and 18. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. What we just read in Luke 23 is an awful account of the wickedness of mankind, but do not be confused. Jesus laid down His life voluntarily. The Bible teaches us in the book of Isaiah that one angel, one angel of God took out an army of 185,000 men. Now that doesn't necessarily mean that if there were 186,000, the angel couldn't have taken them out, but that one angel was able to take out nearly 200,000 humans with a swipe of his power. Jesus could have called legions and legions of angels. To do the math is absurd. The point being this. This man who died on the cross, the Son of God, also the Son of Man, had absolute all power at His disposal. To see Him being led away, it would look as if man had finally found a way to control Jesus. But Jesus' death was a voluntary death. He laid it down. Nobody took it from Him. That He would lay down His life for us is overwhelming. But what's even more wild to me is that this is the reason He came. To think that God would lay down His life for you. Let me say that again. To think that God, clothed in flesh, the Son of God, would lay down His life for you. We see by the way that He died this truth that He was in the world, but the world refused to receive Him. He came to His own, but He was rejected by His own. There has never been one like Jesus. Nobody. This incredible King, this, this owner of all power, the maker of heaven and earth, was born in humility. Let that sink in. Recently, in the last, I don't know, it might have been five years, time flies for me, and I'm not real good with time, but... Recently, some of the royals across seas uh, had a baby. It was just such a big deal. The whole world's talking about it. Talking about names and this and that, and it's just a big deal. Jesus was born in humility. He was born in in a manger. And then after being born in this humble, humiliating place, He lives his life, for the most part, in obscurity. You know, there's like 30 years of Jesus' life where we have hardly any record at all. We know what happened in his first couple of years as as an infant, just kind of the way that God had to move him from one place to another to escape the attacks of Herod, but it doesn't really teach us anything about Jesus. And then we find out when he's about 12 years old that he's teaching in the temple. Some of you may be familiar with that story. But other than that event of his 12-year-old you know, life, 
There is 30 years of no record. It's mind-boggling to me. How does the Son of God live for 30 years on earth in almost absolute obscurity? And then, when he begins his ministry at age 30, he spends his entire ministry under intense scrutiny. Every word that he says, everything that he does, everybody's constantly trying to trip him up. It's fascinating, the life of Jesus. There is nobody else to compare him to. His sentencing was a mockery. What I'm trying to tell you this morning is that his life was no ordinary life and his death was no ordinary death. And I want us to look at the final words that he said when he was dying on the cross. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Six observations this morning from Jesus' first statement on the cross. Number one, the first thing that Jesus spoke was prayer. That's the first thing recorded that came out of his mouth was prayer. He does not cry out for mercy. He does not cry out of anger. He does not ask for pity. He does not pronounce judgment on his crucifiers. But he is praying. There he is, nailed to the cross. No longer can his hands minister to the sick. There he is, nailed to the cross, a stake driven through his feet. No longer can his feet bring the message of peace and hope to a hurting people. He can't even instruct his followers any longer because they have all abandoned him and left him there to die. So what does he do? He prays. There is none like Jesus, brothers and sisters. There has never been another like Jesus. Perhaps we can learn that there is nothing that can accomplish more than prayer. Jesus prayed for others. He prayed for sinners even in His last hour. You know what else we learn from His prayer for these specific people? He taught us to never regard anyone as beyond the reach of prayer. Think about who he's praying for. Think about the depth of their wickedness. How do you murder an innocent man? How do you drive the stakes through the wrist of somebody and nail him to a cross who has never said a curse word, never said a wrong thing, has refused to fight back, has no true charges against him. How do you do such a thing? These were wicked people. His followers, no doubt, who needed forgiveness as well, but his followers had abandoned him. And there is the Son of God all alone being tortured and crucified. And the first thing he does is pray for those people that are torturing him and crucifying him. It teaches us that the Son of God sees that there is nobody beyond the reach of prayer. 
Do we really pray for our enemies in the same way? When Jesus told us to to love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, there is nobody that's ever did it on the level that He has. The first thing that Jesus did was pray. Brothers and sisters, I'm telling you, God is calling His people to a true life of holy and committed prayer. We need to get our prayers out of the shallows where we're asking God to, you know, get us a raise, give us a new job, give us this. God, help me get this thing. Help me do this thing. God, help me with my little kingdom. God, help us to get out of the shallows in our thinking and start praying the big prayers. For God to save the most wicked amongst us. For God to do the things that we've read about Him doing in the Scriptures. To pray with a sense of absolute faith that God hears us when we pray, that He is moved by our prayers, that, 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 that there is a reason that we need to be committed to this daily and regularly praying for things. Especially with the presidential election uh, two days from now, I'm going to be really cautious not to say anything political this morning other than that we need to be praying for the election. My guess is, if you happen to have a political person that's running for the office that you don't like, that you almost have disdain for, my guess is you certainly haven't even prayed for the person once. And it only reveals that your heart is a million miles from the heart of Jesus, and you are not nearly as holy and righteous and Christ-following as you think that you are. Jesus prayed for his torturers. Number two, the the second observation this morning is Isaiah's prophecy of chapter 53 was fulfilled. This is my last large portion of scripture reading this morning, but there was nothing that I wanted to leave out of it. I looked at it and I thought, I can't leave this out, I can't leave that out. So I'm going to read you the entire chapter of Isaiah 53 and I'm going to show you 10 things that were fulfilled. Isaiah 53, it's 12 verses. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with His wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to His own way. And the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed And he was afflicted, 
Yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him, he who has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many, and look at this last statement, and makes intercession for the transgressors. This is powerful to me that this was written hundreds of years before it ever happened. I'm going to tell you something. This is a supernatural book. It's not just one of many spiritual books on the planet. This is the Word of God. It is supernatural from the beginning to the end. And we just read in Isaiah chapter 53 the exact thing that we read happened in Luke chapter 23. Consider these ten things that Isaiah said in just that chapter alone. He declared that Jesus should be despised and rejected of men. That He would be a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. That He would be wounded, bruised, and chastised. That He would be led unresistingly to the slaughter. That He would be dumb before His shearers. That He would not only suffer at the hands of man, but also be bruised by the Lord that he should pour out his soul unto death, that he would be buried in a rich man's tomb, and then it was added that he would be numbered with the transgressors, and finally, that he would make intercession for those transgressors. I'll tell you one thing, you can bank your life, I'm talking your eternal life, on trusting this word right here. Second observation this morning, quite simply, Isaiah's prophecy of chapter 53 was fulfilled. Number three, the third observation, we see Christ in His humanity identifying Himself with us. Consider the statement, Father, forgive them. Until now, He had forgiven sins Himself. You remember the woman with the issue of blood? She came and she was healed. Look what the final thing Jesus said to her. Luke uh, 7, 48. He simply says, uh, and he said to her, your sins are forgiven. You remember when Jesus healed that man that they dropped down through the, the roof? You might remember that one of the things that was, um, that was so upsetting to the Pharisees and Sadducees was that Jesus had told the man that he could forgive his sins. And, 
And they said, yeah, this is blasphemy, only God can forgive sins. And then Jesus said this in Matthew 9, verse 6, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, rise up, pick up your bed, and go home. So we see that Jesus had the power and authority to forgive sins. So why now does he ask the Father to do it? It is in this moment when he became sin for us that Jesus, I, I, want to, I hesitate to use these words, but I would say that Jesus fully and completely identified with us in his humanity. He is now pleading for us. He is one of us. He has submitted himself completely and fully to the Father's will. How fascinating that this God of all power became like us, identified with us. There is nothing that you have ever gone through and nothing you will ever go through that to some degree Jesus cannot identify with. Nothing. No amount of pain, no amount of hurt, no amount of wrong. Granted, what you went through might not be the exact same identical things that Jesus went through, but make no mistake about it, he can identify with us. He was in all points tempted like we are and yet without sin. He identified with us and we see this when he cries out, Father, forgive them. Number four, the fourth observation this morning. We observe the ignorance of sinners in the blindness of the human heart. Jesus said these words, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Now that is an interesting statement. They knew they were murdering an innocent man. Pilate knew it. The soldiers knew it. The crowd who cried crucify him knew it. And yet Jesus says of what they're doing, they don't know what they're doing. This does not mean that they were ignorant of the fact they were killing him. It simply means they were ignorant of the enormity of their crime. They know not what they're really doing. They have no idea how evil and how wicked this is. I'll tell you, brothers and sisters, that thought right there is one thing that needs to be hammered home for weeks and months to come. Because we still know not what we're doing. The way we downplay our crimes against God, the way we excuse our sins, They know not what they do, but yet they should have known. I mean, the Old Testament alone is ample evidence to prove that He is the Messiah. I read one chapter in it. Just one, 12 verses. And we see prophecy after prophecy after prophecy after prophecy after prophecy fulfilled, 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 fulfilled. They should have known. 
His teaching was like none other. They declared there's never been anybody else that taught like with the authority of this guy. The miracles, the raising of people from the dead, the walking on water, the giving of sight to the blind, the causing the deaf to hear, they should have known. His love for the hurting. And yet they did not know the one they were torturing to death. They had even heard the Father's voice thunder from heaven at His baptism, This is my Son in whom I am well pleased. They were without excuse. And yet Jesus acknowledges they don't know what they do. The rejection of the Son of God. What we are seeing and studying here the rejection of the Son of God, it bears full witness to the ignorance of sinners and the blindness of the human heart. And this terrible tragedy is still being repeated today. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 18. I'm going to read it. I did not give it to them. If you guys want to try to throw it up, you can. But Ephesians 4 verses 17 and 18 concerning the ignorance of sinners and the blindness of the human heart. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their heart. Oh, sinners have no comprehension whatsoever of the enormity of the wickedness of turning away the grace of God, toying with their very soul for eternity. They are blinded, ignorant. It's a theme that has come up somewhat frequently this morning, especially at the 9 o'clock as we were talking about just this, this cheap grace that has permeated our culture where people believe they can continue in their sin, continue in their wickedness, continue in their evil speaking, continue in their evil living, and somehow think that God is going to let them into the gates of heaven. It shall not be so, brothers and sisters. Do not be ignorant. Do not let anybody deceive you. Our God is a holy God. There is none like Him. Does He not deserve the fruit of His labors? After all that He has done, after the death that He has died, after the torture of the cross, after the laying down of His life for you, does He not deserve your faithfulness? Yes, He does. All of it. Every moment of every hour of every day, He deserves it. We observe here the absolute greatness of man's sin, which brings us to our fifth observation this morning, that man's greatest need is forgiveness. We are sinners. That's the bottom line. It is in vain 
that we try to improve upon the human condition without first dealing with the sin problem. Jesus said a man must be born again. You can't be saved until you've been born again. It's like we recognize somebody's blind and so we put glasses on them. The glasses do no good. They're still blind. This is the way we handle sin. We want to try to improve upon it. We want to try to give people all these things to make their life better. The problem is they need forgiven first. They need Jesus to take their sins and wash them away as far as the east is from the west, giving them a new nature and causing them to be born again. We need forgiveness. Yet so few truly believe this. I've talked to people that feel as if somehow it's unfair that God would forgive somebody in prison for their wicked deeds and let them go to heaven, but still cause them to go to hell. It's because they're blinded in the darkness of their heart. They don't recognize the enormity of their crimes against God. They have no concept. They think, well, I'm not that bad of a person. If you have chosen to break the commands of the God who created you, if you have chosen not to follow and live for and love the God who was willing to send His Son to pay for your sins, that is an enormous crime. I don't care how much good you do to your fellow man. You are a sinner in need of forgiveness. It is man's greatest need. Divine forgiveness is not like that of human forgiveness. It does not disregard the penalty of sin. In God's forgiving of us, He does not disregard the penalty of sin. Look what Romans 6.23 tells us, for the wages of sin is death. And then in Hebrews 9.22, without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. This is why Jesus died, brothers and sisters. And so His ability to forgive us is not just the sweeping away of everything we've done wrong. No, there was an atonement. There was a cost. There was an awful cost that was paid so that He could choose to forgive us of our debt. But make no mistake about it, that is the greatest need of every man, every woman, to be forgiven. We have got to see the truth of this. No, God did not send Jesus to die on a cross so that He could find some way to bless you more. That is not your problem, that you need more blessed. Your problem is that you are an evil, wicked sinner destined to spend forever in hell paying for your crimes against God. That's your problem. And you need forgiven. You need the slate wiped clean. You need the debt of your sin erased. And Jesus had absolute authority in this moment. Father, forgive them. Can you see the beautiful way it all works together there? He says, I can ask it. Father, I can demand it. 
because I'm paying for it right now. I have the right to ask such a thing because the cost that needs paid, the shedding of blood, the wages of sin, Lord, I am doing it for these. Man's greatest need is forgiveness. And finally this morning, the sixth observation from the first saying from the cross I see the triumph of God's redeeming love. I want to look at a strange word in verse 34. It's the word and. Most of your Bibles will either say and Jesus said or then Jesus said. If you have an NIV, it just starts out with Jesus said and your NIV is wrong. The word and is there. It is Actually, the word kai, K-A-I in the Greek. It marks a sequence of closely related events. It's different than tying two things together like, you know, he and his wife or Joplin and Andrea. It's not that type of word. It's a different word. It, it, It specifically ties sequences together. Sometimes this word has the accumulative force of the final point. And then. As in, after these things. I read all of Luke chapter 23, verses 1 through 34 just to help make sense of this one word, and then. After being shamed. After being falsely accused. After being declared innocent three times, and yet still being called for to be crucified. After plucking the beard from his face. After spitting in his face. After mocking him with the robe. After the scourging that nearly beat him to death after they crucified him with the cross. And then, he says, Father, forgive them. There has never been one like Jesus. There has never been one like Him. And you have never been loved by anybody like Jesus loves you. I see the triumph of God's redeeming love after man had did his worst, after man had been as vile as man could be, and then love still triumphs, and Christ cries out, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Thank God. Oh, thank God that after our worst, we have and then. There is none like Jesus. You need to hear it this morning that you cannot outrun the love of God. That doesn't mean you're saved. If you have not repented of your sins, I'm not saying just because God loves you that you're saved. God loves the whole world. But you need to understand something. There is no depth you could have ever reached to. There is no sin you could have ever committed. There is no vileness you could have ever participated in that the love of God is not willing to reach beyond and save your soul. 
There is none like him, brothers and sisters. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do.